Amen. You can be seated. Happy Easter. It is great to see you here. Um, welcome if you're visiting with us today, and, uh, and if I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you, uh, my name is Jason Williams. I have the honor of serving as pastor here at the church, um, but more importantly, um, I'm a member of this church, a part of this church family, and I say it often. I would go to church here even if I wasn't the pastor, and I mean that. And uh, so if you're visiting with us today, welcome. I hope that you have been greeted by the Solid Rock Church family. I hope that you feel welcome uh, and loved already. Um, if you have time after the service and you uh, haven't had a chance to introduce yourself to me, I-, I hope that you'll do that. I'll be hanging around after this service to get to meet a few of you. And so I hope that you'll take time to do that. So let me just say, so today is Easter. It's the day that we celebrate um, the resurrection. And so for those of us in Christ, uh, today is a monumental celebration. Now that being said, um, what we're doing today, we actually do every Sunday. So these songs that we sing today are songs that we sing uh, any Sunday here. You could come in and hear these songs. And what we're doing today in the scripture is we're just following along in the same sermon series we've been in since last fall. Going through the book of Acts, we've made it to Acts 13, and we're going to see today how significant the resurrection is, that it's not just a once-of-year celebration observation for those who are in Christ. For those of us who are Christians, everything hinges on the resurrection. It's something to be celebrated every day of our lives. And I would propose to you today that even bigger than, than, than what it means to us as Christians, that human history itself hinges on the significance of the resurrection. That if the resurrection didn't happen, our lives, whether you're a Christian or not, is void of purpose and everything that we do is futile and without hope and without purpose in the world today. That every part of existence, every piece of the human story hinges on whether or not the resurrection truly happened. And so in Acts chapter 13, as we continue on in our sermon series, last week we left off with Paul and Barnabas heading out on the first official missionary journey of the church. Now there have been missionaries uh, from the church before this, but this was the first time a church, the church in Antioch, sent out two missionaries uh, to take the, the good news of Jesus to those who hadn't heard it. So Paul and Barnabas headed out, they had John Mark with them, and they went to the island of Cyprus. We we saw this last week, and they traveled around to the little cities of Cyprus and shared the gospel. And eventually, uh, the Sanitarian leader from Rome who heard about what they were doing, he called for them to come and share the good news of Jesus with him, and he became a Christian. Well, here's where we're going to pick up the story today. They have traveled the circuit of all the cities and villages of of Cyprus, and Paul and Barnabas are going to head back to Antioch, where they came from, and essentially kind of conclude their missionary journey. This is where John Mark kind of bails and heads back to Jerusalem, okay? And so what's going to happen then, when they get back to Antioch, uh, they're going to, on the Sabbath, which is kind of like our Sunday, uh, they're going to show up at the synagogue uh, to listen to the synagogue leaders read from the Old Testament, and then we're going to get Paul's first recorded sermon. Now, it's not his first sermon because he's been out preaching, but we're going to get to hear from the Apostle Paul as he preaches to the synagogue about not only Jesus, but about the resurrection and its significance to all of human history. And so we're going to pick this up part of the way into his sermon. So here's what he's going to do first. So Paul and Barnabas are sitting in the synagogue, just like you would any Saturday or any Sabbath day, 
the leaders of synagogue would get up and they would unroll scrolls from the Old Testament. They would unroll a scroll from the law, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would read a passage of scripture. And then they would roll it back up and they would grab uh, a scroll from the prophets and they would maybe unroll Isaiah or Ezekiel and they would read a passage of scripture from the Old Testament. They would roll it back up and they would put it away. Well, on this particular day, after they were finished reading from the law and the prophets, somebody sent a message to uh, Paul and asked him if he had anything to say. Now, we've come to know Paul. You hand Paul a mic and what's he, he's going to have something to say. And so Paul not only has something to say, he's going to stand up in front of the synagogue and begin to preach. And what he does is he starts in the Old Testament. He starts right where they left off in the scrolls. And he talks to them about how whenever the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt, God heard their cry for mercy. He delivered them from slavery and set them free. And then God began to lead them and walk with them through the wilderness. It wasn't very long, though, before the people of God began to complain. Anytime some type of obstacle rose in their path, they forgot that God was a deliverer and they began to complain and say, God, why don't you bring us out here? Why don't you take us back to Egypt? We're getting hungry. It was better off where we were. And over and over again through this wilderness journey, God displays his parental patience with the people of God as they continued like spoiled children to complain that God had set them free and he was walking them ultimately towards the promised land. And so Paul covers all this, and he talks about how they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. You'd think that'd be enough, right? That finally, they're at the land flowing with milk and honey and this very fertile land, and all that they could have wanted was available to them, but it wasn't enough. At this point in time, God was their king, and he had set over the nation of Israel judges, but it wasn't enough for the people. They wanted their own king. They wanted a, a human king that they could see and they could touch and they could manipulate, and so they begged God for a king. God said, all right, you really don't want a human king, but I'll show you what life is like under the authority of a human king, and he sends them Saul. And we know that Saul was not a righteous leader. Saul was a man who led for his own ambitions, a very self-centered man. And so it wasn't very long before God replaced Saul with another one, a man after God's own heart, King David. Now, what we're going to see in King David is, is a couple things. First of all, now we've got a king who's after God's own heart, So now the people are thinking, finally, right, a king we can trust. But even in David, right, we find that even though he's a man after God's own heart, right, no human king will do. Because even David, after tons of victories and after he established himself as a prominent leader, his mind and his heart begin to drift, doesn't it? And he begins to have eyes for a woman who's not his wife. And he gets Bathsheba pregnant. And then he kills her husband to try to cover it up. And once again, God shows the the nation of Israel, you do not want a human king. That that throne is mine and mine alone. And so Paul lays all that out for them. This is where we're going to pick up his sermon in verse 22, where God removes Saul and places him with David. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, this is God speaking, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23, and of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, who has promised. Now here's what we need to understand. So even though David was a man after God's own heart, he did not fit as a king. 
He did not deserve to sit on the throne of God. So God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 in your Old Testament. God made a promise to the nation of Israel. From David's lineage, I will actually raise up a righteous king. And here's how he will be different. He will sit on the throne forever. Now, we expected kings to sit on the throne for a long period of time, to have long tenure and have success. But what God was saying is, I'm actually going to send you an eternal king. He'll be a descendant of David. This is how you'll know who he is. He will sit on the throne of my people forever. And so from that point forward, in your Old Testament, the people of God began to look for this king or this Messiah who would come. The prophets over and over again would describe what it would look like when he came and the things he would do and the things he would say. Even describing his arrival from a virgin and that he would walk without sin and that he would die for the sins of his people and raise from the dead. So what Paul's going to do next is he's going to say this. He's going to say, and even though you knew all of that, hundreds of prophecies, not only that, God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way to announce to you the kingdom was coming, you still missed him. Everything that you've been reading in your synagogues week after week after week was pointing you to the Messiah. And not only that, God sent somebody to prepare the way to say, repent, the kingdom is coming. And you still missed him. And what Paul is saying to the people of Israel, God has sent the eternal king, Jesus, just as he promised. Now that's important for us to understand. Jesus coming to earth as God's son was not plan B. It was not an alternate route. It was not God backed in a corner, not knowing what to do, looking at his son saying, hey, let's try this. God's plan to send his son to, to earth to die on the cross was an eternal plan. It was planned before the foundations of the, of the earth. Ephesians 1 tells us. This was not a last-ditch effort by God to try to salvage things. It was his plan all along. And for thousands of years, he spoke through his prophets to the nation of Israel that he was going to do this. Isaiah 53, he will be pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, we will be healed. He will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He would die for the sins of his people. And they completely missed it. Now, what Paul is going to do next is incredibly important. So we're going to pick this back up in verse 28 as Paul begins to describe how significant it was that they missed it. Verse 28, and though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What Paul is describing is the sacrificial death of Jesus. Now, inside of each one of us, there is this thing that wells up within us when we see the suffering of the innocent. When you witness maybe a video footage of of children in the aftermath of war, something inside of you wells up, right? That sense of justice, like, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. And if there's ever been an act of true injustice, it's God's innocent son being executed. Think about that. There's never been anybody as innocent as the son of God. And so for you and I, if we were witnesses of what was happening on the cross, 
with the understanding of the significance of it, each one of us should stand to our feet and say what? That's not right. He shouldn't be put to death. He didn't do anything wrong. What Paul is telling the people is that an innocent man died for the sake of others. Now, it's really important for you and I to understand why it had to be Jesus. See, you might find a human being who'd be willing to give his or her life for somebody else. But what we find in Jesus is perfectly pure. He's dying as a criminal, and he did nothing wrong. Why did he do that? Well, the Old Testament tells us that the only way to atone for sins is for innocent blood to die. And that's the only way our sins can be atoned for, paid for. We just sang about it. He paid it all by shedding his innocent blood for us. Now, if this is where the Christian story stopped, it would be inspirational, right? Somebody's laid their life down for you. How could you not be inspired by that? Holy cow, like somebody would care enough about me to die. But this isn't the end of the Christian message, is it? Simply for an innocent man to die was not enough. And so Paul says, not only did he die and was he taken down off the tree and placed in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Now, I would propose to you this, that what we just read, God raised Jesus from the dead, is absolutely essential to everything that we believe as Christians. If you remove that truth from what we believe, all we have is maybe warm and fuzzy inspiration, right? This false sense of security if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead. Because if Jesus is God's son and he truly died for us but doesn't raise from the dead, then one of two things happen. Either one, he really wasn't God's son. He was just a liar or a lunatic, right? And he pretended to be God's son and so he just died and went away. Or he really was God's son, and he took death on and lost. And so it's absolutely essential, right, that we believe that he raised from the dead. But what I'm proposing to you is not only that the Christian faith hinges on this, but all of human history finds its purpose, its essence, in this singular one truth, that Jesus rose from the grave. It wasn't enough that someone died. Somebody had to defeat death. And so Paul is preaching this in the synagogue to the Jews that even though they had it written in their Old Testament, they missed it. But God raised him from the dead in verse 31. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who were now his witnesses to the people. Now, I want to take a moment here. So the Apostle Paul is preaching this. Several years later, he's going to write a letter about this, and he's going to send it to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. And at the end of his letter, in chapter 15, Paul takes some time to explain what he's talking about here. He begins in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He tells the church, For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received, and here's what it was, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? The scriptures. God wrote about it. He planned it. He made it happen. Christ died according to the scriptures, and 
he was in fact buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, verse 5 is what I want to look at, because this is where Paul talks about the witnesses. Verse 5 says this, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, it's his other name. So he appeared to Peter, Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, if we stop right here, um, we might, in our minds, think, well, sure, but no big deal. These guys had staked everything on the fact that they thought Jesus was the Messiah. So surely, after they find an empty tomb, they're going to begin to make up stories, right? To save face. Because they're going to look a fool if this guy hasn't raised from the dead. And so you go, okay, yeah, he appeared to Peter, of course. Peter's going to say, I saw him, right? The 12, sure, they're going to say that. Because what? They left their homes, they left their families, they left their careers to follow this guy. And either, right, they're fools or Jesus really resurrected from the dead. Now, look at what we read next, though, in 1 Corinthians 15. Not only did he appear to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Not 500 individual people in 500 individual accounts, 500 people at the same place, eyewitnesses, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What is Paul saying? He's saying, go ask them. Don't take my word for this. In one particular resurrection appearance, over 500 people were there, and most of those people are still alive. Go ask them. And then he goes on to say what? And though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James. This is not James the disciple. This is Jesus' brother James. Then to all the apostles. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul is saying, look, I'm the least worthy to see the resurrected Christ, but even I got to see him. Okay, I want to stop for just a minute. So let's think about this. It's been long said about Jesus from preachers and teachers of the Bible that you have one of three options when you read the Gospels. Either one, Jesus is who he said he was. He's the Lord. That's one option you have. A second option would be that he's a liar that he's just a great con artist. He convinced these 12 guys to drop all their stuff. Judas was the only one who figured it out, and he bailed. Right? He's just a really good liar. Or the third option is that he's just loony, off his rocker, right? just a madman. Now, you can, you can say, okay, one of those three conclusions you, you must draw about Jesus. How about his witnesses? What do you say about them? Apply the same criteria to them. Either... They actually saw the resurrected Christ, or it was the greatest conspiracy ever pulled off, right, in the human story, and they got together and they made this stuff up and they were liars, or they're just all off their rocker, right? Just crazy lunatics. Now, before you answer that question, let's think about the rest of the story. Every one of these eyewitnesses staked their life their life on this truth that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not talking about they put a bunch of money on it or they put up all their possessions. They gave their lives for this singular truth that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed it with everything that they were. Of the original 12 disciples, 11 are tortured for this truth that they stood on. Ten of the eleven died as martyrs. The only one who didn't die as a martyr was John. He lived to be an old man. He wrote down Revelation for us. 
the only one of the 12 who did not suffer for the truth that Jesus resurrected from the dead was Judas, and he bailed before Jesus ever died on the cross. And then he lived to regret it. He actually took his own life out of regret and shame for walking away from Jesus. Now, we've got over 500 here who had staked their lives on this singular truth that Jesus rose from the grave. And so either they're right, or they're just really, really good liars, or they're just all off the rocker lunatics. One last thing I want to propose to you, and this is where Paul goes next after he talks about himself being unworthy to see the resurrected Jesus. Verse 9, he explains why. He says, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because why? I persecuted the church. And what Paul is saying is not only did the 12 see Jesus, minus Judas, and not only did the 500 see Jesus, not only did James, his earthly brother, see Jesus. I mean, if anybody knew that it was a fraud or a phony, James would have known, right? He knew what his brother looked like and sounded like. Paul is saying not only that, remember my story. We're in Acts 13, back up five chapters, and look and see what I was doing. I was leading the persecution against the church. It was my singular ambition to kill Christianity. I had written permission from the Roman government to travel from town to town, kick in doors, drag men and women out of their homes who professed to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and stone them to death. And what Paul says is this, the singular thing that transformed my heart and my mind and my perspective on things was what? I encountered the risen Christ. And I went from being the leading persecutor of the church to now, five chapters later, the leading missionary of the church. He would say to y'all, guys, either I'm a liar or a lunatic or I encountered the risen Lord. But read my writings. I'm obviously not dumb. I truly saw and encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we have all these witnesses, but I myself saw him, and I will stake everything on this claim. We read the rest of Paul's story throughout the New Testament. This is a man who was run out of town with stones, not once, not twice, multiple times, beaten with a rod to, right to the very brink of death multiple times, shipwrecked multiple times. I mean, he suffered a lot for this singular truth that he believed that Jesus raised from the dead. Now, what I want to do is I want to propose to you that even if you're not a Christian today, the very essence of your existence hinges on whether or not you believe this. Because look at what Paul writes next in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 17, we'll skip down to 17, he says this about us as a church. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile foolish it's a waste of time dressing up and showing up on Sundays and singing songs about Jesus it's a waste of time you might as well stay home or go play golf or go fishing sleep in do something else you look dumb if Jesus didn't resurrect all of Christianity is foolish and futile and then he's going to explain why before we get into what he explains I want to propose to you a couple things so Right now, I'm not just speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to everybody in the room, okay? As human beings, 
when we read the stories of what God does in the Bible, you can find attempts in our human story where we've tried to compare ourselves to God in a number of different ways, right? So we think about the great movements of God, these great displays of his power, where he talks about moving mountains. Well, that sounds like a big deal if you're in a first century mindset. We figured out how to move mountains, haven't we? Just need enough machinery, enough dynamite. We can move mountains. No longer impressed by that, God. Right? We read about God who's a shelter from the storm, and we realize, you know what? We figured out how to build shelters from the storm. We'll call them storm shelters, cellars, right? If you grew up in West Texas, you know how to find shelter from the storm, and we got Doppler radar to let us know when it's coming, right? If you look at the nation of the United States of America, we built this false sense of security in the world. We used to rely and need a God to be our security against enemies, against wars, against, right? But as a nation, we've become quite complacent and proud, haven't we? This rattling of the swords with, with North Korea and Russia still seems like a farce, like there's no way we could be in danger. We figure out how to protect ourselves from the nations. And so in so many ways, we found within our own strength and ability Right to put ourselves as God, to say, look, we can do this without you. But there are two things, two things, that as human beings, no matter how long God allows us to continue as we're continuing, two things we will never overcome in our own strength, our own ingenuity, and our own power. And he, Paul's about to present them to us. The first thing is this, is sin. Look at what he says. If Christ is not raised from the... the is not raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, every person in this room knows full well the struggle of trying to overcome your own sins. You may not call them sins, but you know the struggles. You know those things you've done or those things you said that afterwards you feel guilty about and you feel shame about. That's what happens when we violate God's law. We sin, and then we feel that shame and that guilt. That, that comes from somewhere. Okay? Every human being right, knows that struggle all too well. And we also know, most of us know the struggle of trying to overcome that sin in our own strength. A lot of people go to church today to try to overcome sin in their own strength. They think that if they sit in a church service and sing the songs about Jesus, maybe give money, dress up, people ask them how they're doing, they say fine, that at the end of the day they'll go home and they'll sleep better. Right? So some, for some, just coming to church is a way to overcome your own sin, but we know what happens. When we're ushered into the presence of a holy God, our sin comes back to mind, and then what do we do? We make a commitment, don't we? You know what? I'm going to stop doing that. You know what? I'm going to stop treating people that way. I'm going to stop talking that way. I'm going I'm to start doing this or that and this, and what do we do? We make commitments. Come on, let's be honest, and then what happens in a short amount of time? We begin to stumble and falter, don't we? No matter how strong our commitments, we continue that cycle of failure you and I cannot overcome sin in our own strength, can we? You can't. You can work as hard as you can to try to be a better you, but you'll never overcome that sin issue that's on the inside. You can't touch it. And at the end of the day, when your head hits your pillow, you're reminded daily that you can't overcome your own sin. Now, there's a second thing that Paul's going to present here. And whether you're a religious person or not, you're a Christian or not, Unless you want to be put in the category of lunatics, you can't argue with it. And here's what Paul says next. Not only are you still in your sins, then, you, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have 
perished. He said, here's the other issue, death. You can't figure it out. There isn't a physician who has ever lived or who is ever going to live. There's not a medication. There's not a medical device that you can come up with that can overcome death. You put the best of the best next to a person who has just died, and you cannot bring the dead back to life. You can't. Sure, you can move mountains, right? Load up your machinery, you blow it up, you move it. You figured out how to defy gravity. You put a plane in the air. But you cannot overcome death. You can't do it, right? You'd have to be a lunatic, right, to say, I can overcome death on my own. Because human being after human being has proven this case. We can't. And so it wasn't enough simply for Jesus to die for us. He had to overcome something that we couldn't overcome on our own. And this is why Paul would say the resurrection is the most significant event of human history. And look at what he's going to say. Those who have fallen asleep, they've simply perished. They're gone. Never see them again. Bye-bye. Done. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, because that's all we're left with, right? If we can't hope in life after this life, all we have is right here. If that's the only hope we have, we are to, we are of all people most to be pitied. The world should feel sorry for us. If Jesus did not raise from the death, from, de- from death, we have nothing. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, either one, he wasn't who he said he was, and we got no hope. He simply just perished, dissolved, went away. Or two, he was the son of God, and then he couldn't conquer death. Death defeated him. Either way, If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are to be pitied because there is absolutely no hope beyond right now. And so this sets us up then as we come back to Acts chapter 13 to see what Paul is going to say next in his sermon. Verse 38, he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore... So what Paul is about to do, he's about to make a public statement, and essentially what he's saying is, everybody who's listening to me is about to be accountable for what I'm about to say. You'll have no excuse before God to say, well, I didn't know that. He says, here, let it be known to you. Look at what he says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, he's talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You've heard it. You're now accountable for that. You can't say to God, I didn't know. I didn't hear about this Jesus guy. I didn't know that I need to forgive him. He's saying, no, you've heard it. You're accountable for it now. Look at what he says. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Now, let's stop for a minute because that word freed, depending on what translation you're reading from, will either say freed or justified. It's the same Greek word. So we're being set free from something by being justified. Now, we talked earlier about justice and how if we see innocent people suffering, something wells up within us, the sense of right, injustice that we just can't let go of. The reason that happens is because you were created in the image of God. Now, it's interesting because I hear two competing arguments against the existence of God today in our time. One of them is this. In the midst of suffering, if God is good and sovereign, why does he allow suffering of the innocent? Because he can't be good 
and allow suffering? Why doesn't he repay evil for evil? Where's his sense of justice? Right? There's plenty of injustice in the world. If God's in control, where's his justice? The second argument that I often hear actually comes from the same group of people who then would say that right, hell can't be real because if God is good and loving, he can't punish people. You feel, you feel the struggle there? Which one is it? Now, here's what we have to understand about how the scriptures describe God to us. Right now, in the book of Romans, we're told that right now God is bearing with great patience the objects of his wrath. Meaning this, God is not letting one injustice slip by. Not mine, not yours, not some Middle Eastern leader who is killing people with gas right now. Not one injustice has slipped past the Lord. Right now, he's bearing with great patience towards us who deserve punishment and wrath. And the reality of hell is this, that God says, listen, I am a God of justice. I'm gonna pour out wrath and punishment on those, right, who pour out evil. I'm going to. But here's what we have to understand. The cross was brutal on purpose, Why was the cross so brutal? Because in the cross, what God is doing, he's saying, I am pouring out my sense of justice, my wrath, but I'm not gonna pour it out on you. I'm being patient with you. I'm gonna pour it out on myself. That's why the cross was so bloody and so brutal. God was saying, I am a just God. I do repay evil for evil. No injustice slips by me. And what God is saying to you and I, if you will simply believe in my son Jesus, you will have forgiveness of sins. He paid that penalty for you. You're justified. Not just made better, justified. Considered innocent before God. So Paul says, and by him everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We'll end here. So what he's saying is this. When you look at the law of Moses, which is the law of God, the only thing that can do for you is render you more guilty. The more you try to plead your case or appeal to God and say, yeah, but I did some good stuff right, every time you bring something up, the law points out another area where you're guilty. And so the law of God does nothing to set us free or justify us. If anything, it just keeps this perpetual cycle of showing us how guilty we are. Guilty, guilty. Guilty. What that says to me is that by my own merit and my own strength, I am a murderer, I am an adulterer, I am a liar, I am a thief, I am a sinner. That's what the law says about me. And the more I appeal to the law to try to prove to you that I'm a good person, the more that you see through that and go, there's no way. And so Paul is saying here that what Jesus did for us is that he set us free and did that which the law cannot do for you and I. He overcame sin and he overcame death for us. So we take a step back and we say, how do I get that? Okay, I want that. I'm with you. How do I get that? Where's the checklist? Do I have to join this church and go get a new wardrobe and Right, change my friends and start looking like you know a churchy person. What do I need to do? Give me the checklist. We just read the checklist. Well, I didn't see it. Where was it? And by him, everyone who does what? Believes. And so what happens is the good news, the news that seems too good to be true, that Jesus died and resurrected from the grave, becomes even right, 
better news in that God is saying, here's what you need to do to receive it. You want your list? Here's the box you need to check. Believe. 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 Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we don't even bring faith to the table. We get zero credit for our forgiveness of sins and for our salvation. God gets all the glory. There's no room for you and I to brag or to boast. It is simply the patience, the goodness, the mercy, and the kindness of God. If you're a Christian here today, you've tasted that. And every time you hear that good news again, you taste it more deeply. You know it more deeply. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God has said to you, I want you. My arms are open wide. I love you. My love for you runs deep. My mercy for you is a vast well that you can't, you can't drink all of it. Bring more sin to the table, I'll bring more mercy to the table. Bring more rebellion to the table, I'll bring more patience to the table. There will come a time when my patience is done. And I will bring justice. I, I will venge, Right? I will reckon all that has been made wrong, but right now I am bearing with great patience. That's good news, isn't it? Holy cow. Case in point, if you could see a video reel of my life, one thing you would say, God is patient. I'm worse than the children of Israel complaining out in the wilderness. You would say, oh my gosh, God, really? You saved him? You love him? You're still gonna let him in? And God would say, yeah, because I'm patient. I'm kind and I'm merciful, and I am loving. So I want to end today um, by praying for us, and I'm gonna, in just a minute, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Before I do that, though, I want to share with you two um, hopes that I have, the two things I've been praying for about today. First of all, if you're here today and you're a Christian, uh, my, my prayer for you is this. However excited you were about the resurrection when you walked in, I hope that the Holy Spirit has stirred that excitement some this morning, that you'll leave here more excited. However dependent you felt like you were on the mercy of God and the goodness of God, when you walked in, I hope you'll leave here more dependent, right? More excited, more moved by God's love for you, that that which you already knew has become more and more precious and valuable to you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got three options. Either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he truly is the Lord, the Son of God. And I want to pray now that if that's you, you would make that decision today. As our worship team comes back up, our prayer partners are going to make their way to the back, and they're going to be standing by our prayer and counseling rooms. They're going to be wearing black t-shirts with a lanyard on today, and they're here to talk and to pray with you. And so if you're here today and you desire to become a Christian to take that step of faith, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. When we stand to sing, I'm going to ask you like, to step out and to make your way to one of our prayer partners and ask them to pray with you. Now, here's the thing. I get it. All eyes, everybody's going to be looking at me. What are they going to think about me? Hey, listen, in this moment, none of that matters. Right now, God has laid an invitation of mercy and forgiveness on the table. And he's saying, come meet me here. My arms are open wide. And so I'm going to pray that you'll make that decision today. Let's pray together and prepare to respond. God, we thank you for this great news 
God, and, and from our human perspective, it's, it's even too good to be true. God, why would you love us so deeply that you would send your son to die for us? God, why would you care so much that you would put together an eternal plan that would give us salvation? Father, this morning we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate what you have done for us through Christ. And now we ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would move not just through this room, but through our hearts, God. You would speak to us. God, you would meet us where we are. You would give us the faith and courage to respond. Father, we pray all this in the powerful and the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ.